Hello from Houston, and welcome to the Highlights Podcast. This podcast is brought to you by the Houston Young Lawyers Association. Our goal is to learn, lead, network, and serve. And welcome back to the Highlights Podcast. My name is Patrick, and I'm an arbitration lawyer here in Houston. Femi is unable to join us today for a life reason. But joining us on the podcast today is Anna DiMaggio, who is in-house counsel at Orion Group Holdings. Thank you so much for joining us, Anna. Of course. Thank you for the introduction, Patrick. It's my pleasure to participate in Highlands podcast and speak with you today. And you're going to be speaking with us about the situation, the war in Ukraine, which is a difficult subject, I think, and going on now. We're recording this early on May 2nd. Um, which is a couple of months, I think we're entering the third month of that crisis. Um, and a bit of background for Anna, she is a foreign trained lawyer. She first went to law school in Ukraine and then earned her LLM and began to practice here in the US. Having worked at both firms and companies, she currently works in-house at a construction company, the one I mentioned earlier. At Orion Group Holdings, she works with projects teams, operations and management on contracting, compliance and claims prevention management and defense for the company's concrete segment, TAS Concrete Construction, LLC. She's been involved in various community activities, including HILA's Professional Development Committee, the Houston Bar Association, Chicago Women's Alliance, and a number of pro bono efforts pertaining to immigration. Anna earned her LLB and LLM from Taras Shevchenko National University in, in Kyiv, Institute of International Relations with a major in international law, and her LLM from the University of Chicago Law School. I was going to ask you where the Chicago connection came from for the Chicago Women's Alliance, but that that just answered it. So um, you have found yourself here in Houston. Um, How did you end up practicing in Houston? And maybe in answering that, how did you more generally end up here in the U.S.? Um, Well, I guess um, it's a long story. I was born in a town in the east of Ukraine. I was born and raised in Ukraine. Um, at the time when I was born there, it was Ukraine was part of the USSR. And the only thing that I remember um, about the USSR was the shortage of food, deficit, community yards, and projects, and living with several generations in a small apartment provided to you by the government. Um, then obviously the Soviet Union collapsed and, um, I went to school in Ukraine, in Zaporizhia, in my hometown. Um, it was a gymnasium and I was apparently, um, discovered by my teachers as a student, um, because I was good at languages Um, I learned English and French, which is, um, I think amazing in Europe that you get to learn different languages. I hope it's, I think it's changing in the U S and, um, I'm all about the changes. So I learned English and French and, um, I was ambitious enough to go to the law school in Kiev, um, by the way. I loved your pronunciation of you. <laughs> <laughs> In my you have some of the credit for that. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Um, I entered the international law department of the Institute of International Relations, um, which used to be, I guess, a Soviet school of diplomacy, and that nowadays prides with the professors who represented the Soviet Union and later Ukraine with various international organizations and institutions. And it was awesome. It was a great experience. I was surrounded by brilliant staff of professors. I studied with great, you know, bright students. My college years were great. I graduated with a bachelor's from the Institute, but um, in Europe, you really don't get a JD, you get a master's after the bachelor's. So at the time you decide whether you're going to pursue a career in a certain area, you're basically deciding it at the time when you graduate, when you're graduating high school. Yeah. So I knew I wanted to be a lawyer um, since I was good at languages and not that great at math. Um, I was actually good at science and languages and literature and law. And I love, I always had this strong sense of justice. So um, I got my master's that allowed me to sit for the bar and, you know, graduate with a master's in international law. And then I started working um, right right after I graduated with a bachelor's and worked with the National Democratic Institute, teaching Ukrainian politicians about democracy and grassroots organizations. Later, I started working. Interesting. Yeah, um, as an associate with a prestigious boutique law firm, downtown Kiev. And most of my clients were either US citizens, Canadian citizens, or Irish, or other European countries, Western European countries. So, I figured an LLM, you know, from a foreign law school would be beneficial to my career. So I applied to several universities, um, one of them being Maastricht University, um, and I got admitted there. Um, I also applied to the NYU, got admitted there, and then got an offer from the University of Chicago. So I had no idea about any of those universities or experiences there. I just thought I love the U.S. I love the idea of them being the superpower, the democracy, and I want to learn more about the rule of law um, in the U.S. So I quickly decided um, by ruling out Maastricht that my choice would fall between the NYU and the University of Chicago, and I just looked up the ratings. And um, not being particularly a big city girl, (laughs) I decided to go with the University of Chicago Law School. And uh, at that time, I think President Obama was uh, newly elected as the president of the U.S. Um, so I I thought uh, it would be really cool. And I was honored to go to the law school where he taught. And then after um, graduation, I passed the New York Bar, which allows the LLM graduates to take um, to take the exam and be lawyers, but I still lived in Illinois at that time. So I could technically only practice federal law, um, in Illinois or some sort of, um, immigration law, maybe administrative law, but not state Illinois state law. So I practiced immigration law, um, did some contracts work, did a lot of pro bono work for Ukrainian, for the Ukrainian community, which is pretty large in Chicago. 
Um, and then my family decided to relocate to Houston, which is a complete surprise um, because I've never been to Houston. Um, at that time, I had traveled quite a bit, but Houston was never on my ra radar. Um, I've never lived in a subtropical climate. Um, is what people <laughs> when people think of Ukraine, they think uh, of a dancing bear, um, you know, in a snowy forest. And the question I asked all the time, and I was asked all the time in Chicago, was, "Well, aren't you from Ukraine? Why are you so cold here?" <laughs> <laughs> um, but I've always loved the subtropical climate. That now I realize that. I love the weather here. And it was a pretty intuitive decision for me. I didn't even consider visiting before making the final choice of relocating here. And honestly, I've never regretted since then. Um, I took some time off. Um, I mean, I still did, did immigration work. I um, did pro bono, pro bono services with the um, Catholic charities. And um, then I decided to, you know, go back to the workforce. My kids grew up a little bit. The Houston market turned out to be one of the most fast-growing markets in the country. <laughs> so <laughs> really lucky. Um, and the great thing for an LLM in Houston is that just like in New York, the bar here allows to practice with an LLM only. So um, I was really blessed um in that sense i passed i still sat for the texas bar and passed the texas bar and fairly quickly um while i was still studying i received an offer to work as a contracts attorney at texas sterling construction uh which is a houston-based heavy civil engineering firm um and that was my first introduction to construction law i realized uh I enjoyed a lot. It's pretty um, diverse and it's pretty um, <laughs> it's pretty intense and you get to tackle all sorts of problems at the same time, from claims to contracts, even though my position was called contracts attorney. <laughs> As you can imagine, um, at a construction firm, there were a lot of other issues to work with. And I really enjoyed it. Um, and then I practiced insurance, defense, and commercial litigation with the Bay Law Firm and Wilson Elser um, until I accepted the offer um, of my dreams from Orion Group Holdings. Um, and now I work there as a counsel in the concrete division, like you mentioned. And um, I truly, I truly enjoy what I do. And I'm so happy that um, a little bit of luck a little bit of perseverance, a little bit of dreaming, um, and a little bit of, I guess, hard work brought me where I am in, in Houston. Hmm. That is quite a, I mean, from the beginning of your story like that, those are a lot of very significant experiences, though, that I'm sure like inform how you see the world, like even just from obviously being a child in, in the USSR. Um, and then all the different educational stops and then almost by chance ending up at the University of Chicago, but obviously through a lot of hard work to get admitted there um, and everything you did before. So how um, today, uh, you mentioned, I think the most specific thing you mentioned as far as specific to the Ukrainian community here in um, the United States, you mentioned doing some immigration work for the Ukrainian community in Chicago. Is some of the work that you've done here also particular to 
the Ukrainian community in Houston. I think you mentioned you still do some immigration or have done with Catholic charities or how has that informed, how does international law inform or, or your, your identity as a Ukrainian inform your practice today? think that I mean I didn't do a lot of um, immigration work for Ukrainian for the Ukrainian community here. I tried to do a couple of um, talk shows on the Ukrainian radio just to mm. out answer their questions. Like did a little bit of a hotline. Um, with, I did not. I mean my clients with the Catholic the Catholic charities were mostly um, of Latin American descent. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> But right now, of course, since we are in the 68th day of war, and yes, Ukrainians count every single day of the war that's going on, um, we're doing pretty much everything we can. And by we, I mean Ukra Ukrainians and Americans of Ukrainian origin or, you know, even Russian-speaking um, community who lives here is doing a lot to support Ukraine um, to the best of our ability. We have um, we have organized a number of fundraisers with you know donated money. We've created um, fundraising um, entities um, which assist Ukraine with humanitarian help, mostly. But also, um, there are separate groups of individuals who are also providing. Um, you know, military support. And now I think that the U.S. president signed the Lend-Lease and that the Congress passed the bill allowing you, the U.S. to assist Ukraine with a military force. I think that's just um, great that Ukraine is getting so much um, support from the international yeah. community. I think Ukrainians all over the world are grateful to the U.S. president, to the government, for doing what they are doing um, to support Ukrainian people and to show that there are still democratic principles that have to uh, be followed, that people have to abide by. Yeah. Well, so you obviously have a very on-point story for to, to talk about the situation. What is it that is there anything that you want people to know that they're not likely to know or understand about the war? Mm. I mean, I think that um, I want people to know that it's not fake. It's not, you know, like I've seen, I've heard it all at this point, different perspectives, different perceptions and different beliefs. Um, also sometimes depending on the political views, I don't want to be political. I think that the war is called the war and I want everybody to understand that people are dying, women are being raped. Um, there are terrible atrocities going on on the territory of the country of my you know, birth and where I was raised, where I have community, where I have friends. Um, I have uh, friends and colleagues who work in the parliament, who work with the in the Ukrainian government, work at the universities, and they're not, you know, people who wouldn't know what's going on. No, they're in all intelligent people who 
understand the severity of what's going on. I recently did a, a not a podcast, but like a webinar, um, CLE webinar with Hila about the events in Ukraine, and I invited a pretty interesting panel. Um, of professors from Ukraine, the government representatives, and also um, just, you know, Ukrainians who could speak more about the situation. And they were all devastated and very emotional. And like, I don't want to over-dramatize, but I can't, no, I can't help but dramatize the situation because yeah. it's pretty dramatic. Like, you know, for most of my American friends would watch um, the news the first week. By the third probably week of the war, they just got worn out and depressed and said, you know, I can't go on watching the news anymore. It's just too depressing. Um, as, and, you know, then there's Stephen Colbert showing funny jokes and Joe Rogan on social media, media like making fun and trying to be funny. I don't think it, this is funny. This is not funny, people. <laughs> there are air alerts blasting in the cities. And um, nevertheless, Ukrainians are super patriotic. On the positive side, they're staying together. They're staying pro-Ukraine, um, anti-Russia. And I think well, my family in Ukraine, I, my grandma's there. I have um, extended family in Ukraine. Like I said, my community and friends are there. They, yeah. stay, they chose to stay, even though I, I offered at one point saying, you are more than welcome to come here as a refugee for a period of time. We will host you. We will help you out with whatever you need. All of them say, it is my home and I'm not leaving. Why would you leave your home? I'm going to defend it. And I don't judge that at all. I mean, it's their choice and it is their home. They've raised families there. And yeah. I think it's just also devastating that the Russian government chose such a poor justification of the war. Uh, I've, um, I would recommend anybody who's interested in the subject to read the ruling of the International Court of Justice and to watch, uh, if they're still available, I watch them live, the oral hearing, uh, oral argument, uh, the hearing of the International Court of Justice on the Ukraine issue. Pretty much, I think it was in March uh, when the ruling uh, was um, what the judge ruled on the case and uh, the Russian party didn't even show up to the oral, to do the oral argument to the hearing. Oh. They didn't, they just submitted their papers. And I think they've done this in the past. So this is almost like a modus operandi for <laughs> dictator um, state. They just submit the papers and don't care that they're violating um, international law. So the excuse Russia had to start this war was that there is an alleged genocide um, of Russian-speaking people in Ukraine. Well, I, I will tell you that I was born and raised a Russian speaker. And although I went to the only Ukrainian school in my town um, because of the long many years of the Soviet Union, I never was prejudiced in any way. 
wherever I was on the territory of Ukraine. And like I've said, while working at the NDI or even before that, I traveled quite a bit all over Ukraine, in the western parts of Ukraine, in the parts bordering Poland, Hungary, Romania, that it, I would never, ever feel like there was any sort of bias toward me. Um, the same holds true for my family. There is absolutely no basis to believe yeah. any genocide of the Russian-speaking population. And actually, um, the several government representatives have stated that they will investigate the alleged genocide accusations. They will start the investigation and they will look into this. So Ukrainians never said, you know, we, we don't care. But nevertheless, the war started, was started. And um, I think that right now, we all have to stand united in supporting Ukraine in whichever way we're able to do that. Um, I guess I want to touch on the idea that some people have that if we speak Russian, you know, Ukrainians speak Russian and we share some common history, Russian and Ukrainians, yeah. that we must reunite together or we, that Ukraine was an autonomy of Russia. So I would ask then if the U.S., Canada, and Great Britain speak the same language, should they reunite as well? Should Britain start a war in the U.S.? Um, I mean, that's just obvious. Um, another argument I heard that I find funny was that there has to be a compromise. Well, you create it's both, you know, both parties hold like in a, any relationship that yeah. you can't find that compromise. So my thought on that was, how do you compromise with an abuser? It's like telling a victim of domestic violence to compromise and stay in an abusive relationship. It just doesn't work that way. Is, yeah, is there a difference between compromise and appeasement, which is, I guess, the term people use to describe what happened leading up to World War II? Right, and I think with an abuser, there's no compromise. There is only appeasement, which never ends. It, I think yeah. right now Russia is stating that they don't want to invade Ukraine. No, they don't need Ukraine. They just want to um, establish that Ukraine is not a separate nation, that Ukraine is a separate autonomous entity that is part of Russia, so they want to denationalize Ukraine, which, excuse me, but if this is not genocide, then I don't know what is. And of course, they refuse these allegations. They refuse the idea that there is any genocide or violation of international law or atrocities going on in Ukraine. But we've seen, everybody has seen the pictures of Bucha, of Mariupol, and of other towns where, and there are other smaller towns where nobody shows them in the media because I mean they were, you know, local small villages that the same atrocities happened there too. So, um, I guess even though we are the brother nations and we were the brother nations for a period of time, my my grandparents. Uh, you know, fought in the Second World War, both of my maternal and 
paternal grandparents fought in the Second World War. Um, a lot of Ukrainians fought against Nazis together with the with the Western world and Russia and um, the U.S. It's it's quite ironic that today Ukrainians are subject to this treatment, but it's not new. I don't want anybody to think that you know we were Ukraine was always part of Russia, and all of a sudden um, Russia is coming out that way against Ukraine. Not at all. I highly recommend. Um, a book by Anne Applebaum, um, Red Famine, which describes the events of pretty recent events of 1930s, 1933rd, when um, basically Stalin ordered millions of Ukrainians to be um, extinct because he ordered the famine. Ukraine was the largest and I think may oh, wow. Largest producer of um, the largest producer of wheat. Yeah. Um, and it has fertile soils and has a lot of other produce uh, that Russia just doesn't have. And so at that time, millions of Ukrainians died from famine, which was manually, knowingly made by the Russian government. Because they feared that Ukraine is becoming more separatist and more independent, even though if you look back in the history, it has always been a separate state and never wanted to be under the rule of either Poland or other what, you know, Hungarian or Austrian empires or Russia. So if we go back in time, centuries ago, when Russia was not around, there were several Slavic tribes, and then Key, Shek, and Horiv, three Scandinavian brothers and their sister Libit, um, settled the town of Kiev. Kiev eventually became the capital of Kievan Rus, which is the present-day Ukraine. And Kiev Rus, or Kievan Rus, was a loose federation in Eastern Europe and Northern Europe from the 9th to the mid-13th century. So that happened really before, you know, there was Moscow and Russia. Ukraine was baptized by the Ukrainian Duke Volodymyr. Um, And Rus, by the way, refers to the city of Kiev for centuries. So this is to the point that you know, Putin is alleging that he is justified in invading Crimea because basically uh, Khrushchev was just having a party drinking um, with the Ukrainian government officials and just decided to gift Crimea at the time of this USSR to Ukraine. So that's to Putin is arguing now that, well, it, he shouldn't have never gifted Crimea to Ukraine. Now it should be <laughs> go back to so in 2013, he went and invaded Crimea all of a sudden. That's not how international law works, right? That's not how um, international relations work. Um, Moscow was founded later. So if we follow his logic, <laughs> you know, the establishment of the Kiev Rus preceded the establishment of Moscow Township and then maybe everything should go back to Kiev. <laughs> I mean, it is such a, the whole history argument, which I know isn't, it's more of a counter argument that you're making to the 
justification for invasion. Um, but it is interesting because you, you don't even need to go back that far. Like all that matters is that they've been a sovereign state really for 30 plus years, right? Like, uh, and if not well before that, they've had their own distinct identity and, and statehood. Exactly. And these years of democracy, I mean, don't get me wrong, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, Ukrainian independent republic was pretty depressed, like the economy was depressed, everything, I mean, there was still deficit, we still struggled, the inflation was insane. Um, it was a recovering economy after the Soviet Union collapsed, yeah. but within the 30 years, there there have been so many changes, transformative changes, positive changes where the economy has grown. There have been foreign investments, Western, mm -hmm. US, Canadian investments, which is the reason why my clients were from all these different countries, right? Um, so many yeah. interests in the, in, in the economy and the freedoms were there. We could, in Ukraine, you could go and protest, unlike in Russia, Right now, Russians are being put in prison for protesting um, against the war in Ukraine. You know, and we, I felt like I was living in a pretty democratic country when I lived in Ukraine. So all these years of democracy can go nowhere. Nobody wants to go back to the Soviet times when my aunt, excuse me, <laughs> was hiding a book by Pasternak under her, you know, bed uh, on a mattress because they were, some literature was simply forbidden because he didn't speak the truth that the Soviet government wanted him to speak. Or, you know, a lot of other... Yeah is a freedom than the scarcity of everything. It was just, in my opinion, not a democratic state. And I think Russia remained that way or tries to at least. I think the people have changed and with the globalization and the availability of technology and the internet, it's getting harder and harder for the Russian government to preserve that militaristic um autocratic you know yeah. full uh, way of governance but after 30 years of democracy it's ukraine doesn't want to go back and there's a whole new generation that will not go back because this is their home and they grew up in a democratic country and they will fight for it even if they have to lay their lives they will fight for it yeah, I mean, it's, it is astounding how much I, I was born after the fall of the Berlin Wall, but it's astounding how much has changed, I guess, even just during my lifetime. Um, and then to now be in this situation again, but it's not like Ukraine is the only country that has gone through these changes. It's a lot that has happened. Um, one thing that you, we've mentioned here and there is this idea of international law. Is there, do you have a short definition of what international law is that you tell people when they ask you what, what it means? Oh, that's a tough one. Yeah. I'm not an international lawyer. Like, I, I guess I'm a trained international lawyer, but I'm a practitioner. 
So I would say it, that international law started at Asius Bellus, which was um, which is translated from Latin as the law of the war. So you know it started back in the I guess in Greek policies in the little cities, and then in the Roman Empire as the war of being humane during the wartime. Because if you look at the history of, you, of Europe, I totally agree with you, Patrick. It's, it's not that far away in the history that we had the Cold War and that we had you know, the fall of the Berlin War. It was all recent, even though people forget about it. Mm-hmm. Um, the same holds true for you know, the past and many years ago. Um, Europe was always... There were always some sort of conflicts and um, about ge- geography and the territories in Europe, and so it under it's undergone um, a lot of changes. And the international law was the law of the war because people realized, okay, we're going to go to war anyway, but we can choose to be humane to the civilians. We don't have to uh, imprison civilians. We don't have to. Uh, be cruel. We don't have to rape women because in the end, everybody suffers from this. And it's just not humane, especially as the European civilization developed and, you know, learned more about faith and philosophy, arts developed. I think the concept of the civilized society grew and developed as well. So um, I personally um, really enjoy the works of Immanuel Kant, who um, who is a philosopher who wrote about the empirical, you know, analysis of law, and who believed that there is a possibility of the governments of cooperating and living together side by side. Um, even if they sometimes have a conflict, resolving that conflict peacefully without the use of violence. And even if the violence is going to be used, still abiding by the moral principles, the virtuous principles of international law. So I think that's where the main, um, the germane point of international law is to to have a set of rules um, in a globalized world that helps different stakeholders, countries, and sometimes even um, organizations to cooperate and work together for the better benefit of the people and these countries and organizations. So is there... We've also talked about, you know, what it means to be a democracy or on the other hand, an autocracy. Is there a, does the form of government affect how a state views or incorporates international law? Yes, uh, absolutely it does. Um, So I, when I went to the University of Chicago, I participated in the lectures by Tom Ginsberg, who um, I highly recommend. as a professor, as a scholar, and I also recommend his books. And one of the recent books that he's written um, is called Democracies and International Law. And so Professor Ginsburg argues that 
international law and democracies live side by side. They're intertwined and one is dependent on the other. So basically, the more democratic a state is, the more likely it will follow um, the rule of law the and the principles of international law and the rules of international law. The less democratic a state is, the more um, autocratic mechanisms it has within the state and the more likely it is to not follow the rules of international law and to, you know, just assert yeah. power and do whatever um, that state wants to do to um, to gain more power and to make the people of that state submit to that autocrat. And I think it's pretty clear that in the case of uh, Ukraine and Russia, um, Ukraine is being supported by democratic countries, Western countries, the US and Western European countries who believe in the principles of international law and believe in the fact that governments have to cooperate to create internal organizations and world peace. So I think Russia is acting as an autocrat. And in fact, the um, I think in the UN, it has already pretty much been decided that Russians' actions are an act of war when at first um, the Russians suggested that that was just a military operation. Um, I think at the UN level, it has been established that there is a war and there are war crimes going on. Um, and the only countries that are opposing that view are, if you think about it, autocracies. They are um, Eritrea, uh, North Korea, Belarus, Russia, and I think Syria. Um, so most of the world, even the countries that may still struggle with democracy, support the fact that Ukraine is the victim and that Ukraine needs assistance and that the countries, the democratic countries need to make sure that Ukraine wins because if they don't, and if somehow Ukraine loses in this war against the um, autocracy and uh, the dictatorship, then the entire world will lose in the battle. So I, I definitely think that there is a distinction between how international law applies um, to the dictatorships and even for, even to judge um, Russia, there are democratic institutions like the International Court of Justice or like the European Court and Human Rights, um, who recently, by the way, elected um, a professor of international law from Kiev, Gnatowski, uh, as the justice of the court, which is oh. a great development for Ukraine and a great win. Wow. There, there are those democratic institutions that will investigate, that will listen to both sides, that will ask a lot of questions and make a ruling. They're not going to act in a dictatorial, yeah. way just because Russia is the way it is. 
So I think I think international law still <laughs> exists. I would I mean not maybe not in Russia, and I feel terrible for Russian lawyers, <laughs> especially international lawyers. Yeah. But also they uh, have been doing pretty well. And I think they have shortage of lawyers who want to speak up to justify the events um, in Ukraine and and what Russia is doing. So I think there is good news, and I, I view the situation um, pretty positively. Uh, that in in the sense that international law and international community. Um, are still alive and are still working yeah. better of the world peace and um, the better of the world generally. And when you, when we talk about democracy on the one hand and autocracy on the other hand, is that sort of, is it a spectrum? Do you see it as a binary decision or are there different nuances between, I mean, we all know, I guess when we think of a democracy, you know, you think of self-determination, voting, when you think of autocracy, you think of, you know, an autocrat, a dictator making all the decisions. Are there other, can you be in between? Can you have, um, or is it sort of your one or the other? That's a good question. Um, I think you have to lean toward one or the other. Uh, but I think there were there are a lot of countries that are work in progress. I think we can look at you know a lot of African countries, um, a lot of and even Ukraine at some point was a work in progress after the collapse of the union. Mm-hmm. Um, some Latin American countries, I think you can you can there may be not a very bright line, but I think there still is yeah. a where you can see, okay, this country is still choosing freedoms. It's still choosing listening to the international community. It's still participating in the international organizations, uh, be it European Union or the UN or other organizations. And it's still putting an effort to, um, you know, to build up the market economy. And there are also countries that clearly are not even interested anymore. And I think, to be honest, that as time progresses, there are more and more of those countries that are clearly distinct, where Western Europe, the U.S., Canada, show clear tendencies to to be democracies, and then the countries that (laughs) vote um, against uh, the Stand with Ukraine movement Mm -hmm when clearly to me um, show the propensities to being autocratic. Yeah. And I've heard somebody, um, I think I was listening to the Chicago podcast on the, um, you know, the market economy and the capitalist markets and the connection um, to the war between Russia and Ukraine where the idea was that you don't have to block the companies. You, the companies that are from democratic countries may still uh, continue their businesses in Russia during the war. And 
that wouldn't change anything. Whether they continue the business or whether they withdraw, nothing would change because really, if they withdraw their business from Russia, all they're doing is hurting the people, but not really the government. I just yeah. I couldn't disagree more <laughs> with that argument with all my due respect to the University of Chicago professors. I just couldn't disagree more because those are um, bloody <laughs> um, capitalist earnings. And I do, I am, I believe in capitalism, obviously. I live in this country, I enjoy it. But I think that the companies, in a way, especially large corporations with offices all over the world, have become almost actors um, on the international arena. And they have to show whether they're siding with democracy or whether they're supporting autocracy. And I have no doubt that having a business in Russia does benefit the Russian government. I have no doubt in that. Yeah. So I would also encourage the efforts of the international community to de um, destabilize, I guess, I guess, that region by the continuous efforts of persuading the corporate officers and leaders, especially of the publicly traded companies, to not do business with Russia, to not participate in the, um, you know, co the country's revenue and GDP just because you don't want to be part of the country that violates international law yeah. clearly stands against the democratic principles. Yeah, I guess that, uh, that criticism of it from that, the podcast you mentioned from the University of Chicago, I guess that falls in line with criticisms I've heard of other sanctions that the U.S. has done, like on Cuba or Iran, where it's, well, it ends up just hurting the people versus the government, but the sanctions are an important tool in, in, in anyone's belt these days. And they are an important tool. And to quote William Shakespeare, I have to be cruel in order to be kind from King's Ear. <laughs> you will have to go through pains, growth pains to grow. It's inevitable. So yeah. people will have to suffer. Did Ukrainians suffer after the collapse of the Soviet Union? Absolutely they did. Was it a little bit better before the collapse versus right after the collapse? Probably. But is it was it much, much better 30 years, 25 years from then? Absolutely. There's no question about that. There was, you know, there were markets, there was abundance. It just it the ch change is never free and change is never easy and painless. Yeah. So sanctions are important. Well, so when you first came to the U.S., as someone who was born in Ukraine during the time of the USSR, what what were some of the most striking differences that you you sort of saw between the lives of either people at that time in your life or from thinking about from your childhood in USSR slash right after the USSR times? I guess USSR was also an autocracy, in my opinion. And the more it became less of an autocracy, um, the weaker it got. So the difference is that 
in the USA, um, we're free to express our thoughts, beliefs, our opinions, wear whatever we want to wear, and otherwise just self-express. Um, that was impossible in autocracy. So in the USSR, there was, like I mentioned several times, I think, not only shortage of everything, but also everybody had to stay in line and be kind of the same. Like it wasn't appropriate to dress into anything than maybe gray and beige or whatever colors everybody else were dressed in. Um, that's just on a you know daily, <laughs> daily household yeah. level, but also with the readings, you can read whatever you wanted to read. There was um, extreme propaganda, no free sources of media. Um, so I feel really bad for the Russian citizens who are imprisoned for speaking up for Ukraine or who have to believe the propaganda that they sh they're shown on the public television. Um, I think several sources of social media, several kinds of social media are blocked in Russia now. And um, some banks aren't working and the, the entire system is just um, not very pro-people, even though people elected this. But the funny thing is that I think Russians at this point already suffer from a Stockholm syndrome where I've heard it so many times. Uh, Russian citizens say, we need a strong ruler. Russia has always had a strong ruler and we need one. Putin is one. So he's perfect. His decision, it's almost like they enjoy that <laughs> the autocracy and the usurped power by one dictator. Um, so that's because, you know, they probably don't know any better. That's what they've used to have for, for the entire generations. And I think the difference, of course, between that and being used to that economy and that scarcity and almost um, liking it at this point is the difference that um, the capital markets in the U.S. Um, allow for more self-expression and also, I think, a better lifestyle for families, for people. Um, and of course, I think being different in Russia is difficult and it uh, posed the same um, held true for the Soviet Union. You can, you can say that honestly, you know, you are a different gender than you were born or anything like that. God forbid that would, you would probably be put to jail <laughs> for a long, very long time, yeah. reasonably long or sent to um, Gulag which is another um, Solzhenitsyn's um, archipelago, Gulag, uh, a good book. Um, I would recommend if somebody is interested in this topic. It's, um, I think it's three volumes, um, and but there is a summary on Audible that I've read or listened to um, that pretty much summarizes the volumes. It's, um, it's not a fun read. <laughs> <laughs> But it's something that I think is worth remembering. I, I personally believe that no matter, I would, I would teach my children the same, that you can enjoy where you are at. You need to know your roots, but you still would 
fun to remember what happened in the past because history repeats itself and we're seeing it now. Nobody have ever, I would have never thought that in the 21st century, there could be a physical altercation of the kind that is happening right now in the middle of Europe. Yeah, yeah. I thought with the invention of internet and internet, and you know, there could be an informational war, maybe, but not a physical war where millions of people are harmed. Yeah, yeah. And unfortunately, like you mentioned earlier, for many people, it's sort of become a status quo that they sort of now file away in the back of their mind and aren't keeping up with. One, I know you mentioned some organizations that you've been involved in starting and fundraising. What is it that people here in the US, lawyers or otherwise, can do to help assist the efforts of the Ukrainian people? Yeah, that's a very good question. I think there's so much all of us can do. Um, first of all, I would encourage the donations to the humanitarian aid organizations. Just check the organization. Um, if you have any questions, feel free to reach out to me. I'd be more than happy to give you suggestions of the good organizations. Because of course, you know, there are always opportunities or opportunists out there who um, may want to take advantage of the situation. So check your sources, check who you're donating to. And uh, it's it doesn't have to be a lot, but it could be something minor. I think that helps a lot, the hospitals, because Russians are targeting hospitals, schools, um, civilian areas and infrastructure. So that would definitely be helpful. Um, I think participating, there are a lot of causes around Houston and um, the Houston area. There's a Ukrainian church if you want to visit it, and there are a lot of resources there as well that you could learn about how you could help. Definitely helping out with uh, refugees and maybe checking with the Catholic charities or other pro bono if you're a lawyer organizations to see if you can be of any help um, with the you know paperwork. Yeah. Because a lot of those refugees, like we've, my family just recently, uh, we were moving the furniture out of the house and we donated all of it to the two family refugees from, from Ukraine. And there are many, many more. And they were basically still under a lot of stress with PTSD and all sorts of issues. And they say that still, they can still hear the, um, you know, the air alerts and the shootings and when something falls on the floor, they still jump up and become edgy. So they're still undergoing through, going through a lot of stress um, and emotional distress. Yeah. Helps you if you can do that. Um, there's also, I mean, what, with whatever you can, there are also in every, I think, church now, there's some sort of assistance to Ukraine. A lot of universities have programs with assistance. I just love to see how everybody got united um, and is standing up for what is right. I And today, this morning, actually, I did a reading of Preet uh, Parara's book, Justice Is, to the um, elementary kids at the Beasley Elementary, and I'm going to do the same um, in Needville Elementary, where my kids go. It's just um, amazing to yeah. 
to read those words, to read those inspirational quotes um, that, you know, what justice is and what, how it, it takes forever sometimes to seek that justice and to find it, to right the wrong. But you have to do it. You can't just be like, uh, to quote Sonia Sotomayor, you can't be a bystander. You can't afford being a bystander in life. You can't afford waiting until something happens and just not take action. Yeah, well, certainly powerful words to end on. Um, I guess perhaps on a lighter note to wrap up the podcast and in the spirit of <laughs> Femi, who um, is not here with us, but do you have any, you've now established your life here in Houston and you're, you're raising your family. Do you have, are there any, favorite spots you have for food and particularly any favorite ukrainian restaurants that you would recommend oh wow that's a that's a good question patrick <laughs> <laughs> you with that. um yes there is a restaurant called real r-i-e-l and it's i believe somewhere maybe in the heights and the chef is Ukrainian-American, and he cooks just amazing Ukrainian uh, food, Ukrainian dishes, but they're a little bit Americanized. <laughs> so I, <laughs> yes, it's not very, it's not 100% authentic, but it's pretty authentic, in my opinion. And it's really, really good. So I would definitely recommend that um, everybody checks it out if they can. Okay. Good. I, I haven't heard of that, but we'll, I mean, I will definitely check it out one of these days. Yeah. Um, well, thank you for talking with us, Anna. I know it's, you're very passionate about this. I, I don't know for you whether it's an easy or a hard topic to talk about. You're obviously very knowledgeable about it, but we really appreciate you sharing your personal and your professional experiences uh, in this regard. And we're all hoping for the, the best possible resolution to this as soon as possible. But um, we'll see how it goes. Thank you again for, for sharing your story. Of course. It was very nice to speak with you, and I appreciate the questioning and the invitation to the podcast. Of course. Until next time. All right. Take care. Bye. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Highlights Podcast brought to you by the Houston Young Lawyers Association. To reach us, please email us at highlightspodcast at gmail.com. We hope to hear from you if you have any comments or questions about this episode or thoughts on a future one. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you have a great rest of your day.